are listening to First Inhuman, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vial, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co-founder, with episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays. For episode 32, we chat with Nicholas Tillmans, founder and CEO at Anagenics. Stay tuned to learn how Anagenics is combining the power of machine learning and biochemistry to revolutionize the drug discovery process. Nicholas, thank you for joining us on First and Human. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. You come from an interesting mix of both bio and computer science. You're one of this new breed of tech bio founders. Tell us about your background. How did you get into this space? I've been interested in genetics from a very young age. And at the time, I thought that was genetics, but it turns out that was biochemistry. And I also really liked computers from a young age and taught myself how to program in high school in CNC++. So when I was looking for colleges, I was like, maybe I should do this biochemistry thing. And I was interning at the NIH and the postdoc I was interning with said, hey, you should really look at this bioinformatics stuff that's coming online and, and maybe you want to do that. And I was like, all right, I'll just add computer science. How hard can it be? as a major, and did both biochemistry and computer science as an undergrad. And then was like, you know, you can't really answer questions as a bioinformatician. You get a lot of questions to answer, a lot of ideas, but you don't actually answer what what is the answer until you do an experiment. So I went to grad school for biochemistry at Stanford, ended up getting drawn back into a technology approach because I just really love the idea of finding new tools, building new tools. And so I worked as a graduate student with Pear Harbury, working on a flavor of DNA encoded libraries that ended up eventually getting spun out into DICE. So I was at the bench doing a lot of chemistry, a lot of molecular biology in this really complex DNA encoded library scheme. After that, I decided I didn't really want to be pipetting anymore. So I went back to computers, went to work as a data scientist, worked at a couple different places, eventually ended up running a data and machine learning engineering team at a small company called Lumiata which dealt mostly with patient data, lots of insurance and EHR data, uh, trying to harmonize that and build models on that before starting this company in late 2019, early 2020. I've gone back and forth between the bench and the keyboard. My dream is to see projects where the compute can create new experiments and those experiments can actually generate novel computational solutions. There's this virtuous cycle between the two. And I think that anagenics is one of those places in particular because of the kinds of data sets that we generate, allow us to ask computational questions that couldn't be asked otherwise, and, and then to design experiments that couldn't be done otherwise. So that's the grand vision of how I got here and why I do it. Let's maybe drill into energetics. Your focus is taking a machine learning approach to a lot of the work being done in the Dell space, the DNA encoded library space. Maybe give us a sense of what you think the opportunities are there for kind of novel computationally driven approaches and advancing therapeutics. So while we're using DNA encoded libraries a great deal, the goal of Anagenics isn't to do machine learning on DNA encoded library. The goal of Anagenics is to say, look, machine learning in particularly discovering novel chemical matter in drug discovery, I guess we'll start at the higher level of what is the real problem that we think is important to solve in drug discovery. And there's so many of them, but one of them is if you have a new target that you think is interesting, it takes thousands, sometimes even tens of thousands of compounds and two, sometimes even 10 years to even get to a point where you get to test that idea, that hypothesis with a molecule in a living organism. So finding new chemical matter that will be useful to a new target or a new biological hypothesis is a major challenge in drug discovery. 
Now, machine learning has made a lot of promises on how it can help that process and failed to deliver as a general rule. It's just very hard to get machine learning to help with that. And that's because when you look at where machine learning actually works, machine learning works in places where you have tons of data, where everybody's looking at things like ChatGPT, at stability, AI's uh, stable diffusion, mid-journey, all of these beautiful models that are on all over Twitter today are working because they have extraordinarily large amounts of data that power those architectures. That data simply does not exist in chemistry. If you look at the way a high-throughput screen or traditional screening process works, if you're at the biggest pharmaceutical companies, you're going to have access to low single-digit millions of compounds. You're going to do a rough screen with that. So maybe you're going to have some set of data from that. Then you'll probably do a focus screens in the high tens, low hundreds of thousands of compounds. Then another follow-on screen. So essentially, by the time you're done, you're going to have maybe between tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of high-quality data points to train your model. And that's nowhere near the kinds of data sets that you would want to go into true machine learning. So why we use Dells is not because we want to use Dells with ML. It's because we think it's the only place to get billion data point scale data sets to be able to power these novel architectures. So we actually use a variety of tools, not just Dells, but also affinity selected mass spectrometry and a lot of other approaches to be able to create the data sets to train the modeling. That's sort of step one. Can you create a big data set, train a model off of that that has some predictive power? But we think that the next thing in machine learning and the other thing that's underappreciated is how do you make the model better? How do you improve it after generation one? Because the only guarantee you have in machine learning is that your first model is probably not your best model. So how do you get it to be better? So that's where our unique ability to build libraries really fast allows us to say, hey, machine learning, don't just tell me what are the next 100 compounds or so that you can buy off of enamine or whatever. Tell me what the next 1 million, 10 million compounds we could build are. And then let's go out and build those, test them again. And now we can reinforce the model and improve its abilities to predict things. Eventually, you have a model that's good enough to be able to generate new chemical matter on its own or to be a good arbiter of what's a good molecule or not to be able to test more innovative and different structures than you might have otherwise. You talked about the scale of the data. Maybe give us more color there. How much data are we talking and how do you manage that scale of data, your data engineering process or just your data stack? So at this point, the total data set within the company is in the hundreds of billions of data points. Every time we run an experiment, we'll have something like 2 billion data points as a single condition. And we're usually running a good at least three or four, often 10 different conditions. So depending on the experiment, each experiment can be on the order of 20 billion new measurements of compound to some response. Does it actually interact with the protein? The way we do this now is we use a lot of, obviously, AWS. In terms of the data engineering stack, you've got several different data sets that feed in. You have the lab work, so smaller scale work, assays, how did you build the library, all of that stuff. Those are stored in Benchling. So everything sits in Benchling as our record for experimental data. Anything that involves a DNA encoded library at the scale of those tens of billions of data points, though, is way too large to fit in something like an ELN. So that's stored in S3 in AWS. And we interface with it using a variety of database solutions and Spark. So it's all in the same kinds of process that you would see in a tech company. We're using large, flat files and various tools that are pretty standard now to interface with that, make it look like a database. 
All of this is hosted in a Kubernetes cluster that we run ourselves. And we orchestrate this, I believe at this point we're on Airflow 2 is mostly orchestration. The machine learning experiments used to be tracked in ML flow. I think we've been experimenting with a new different tool to track ML experiments because it's very important to be able to go back and say, you did this experiment, you had this result. How does it compare to your newest result, your newest model, your newest idea? That's kind of the high-level overview of the tools and the data architecture we use. In short, we use the same kinds of data architectures that you would find at a more traditional tech company that has nothing to do with biotech. If you give us a sense of some of the challenges in building the company, it could be data, it could be non-data. What, what was maybe most surprising in terms of some of the challenges when you, if you would think you're going to bring yourself? The hardest thing for any tech bio company, in particular a tech bio company that combines computation and lab is that interface. I think we have a a huge number of technical advantages that have been challenging. So how do you build a DNA encoded library at the million compound scale in about two weeks, which is faster than anybody in the industry? We solved that. How do you train on these data sets scalably? A lot of companies have struggled there. We've solved that. So there's a lot of technical challenges we've solved that have given us an edge. But I think the major advantage we have is that culture, is our ability to mix the compute team and the lab team, have them communicate well together. And we, we specifically hire for it. Some of the questions that I ask are things like, teach me something about one of your experiments. Teach me something about one of your machine learning tasks. We screen for the ability to communicate and interface across groups. That, I think, is one of the central cultural challenges. We work on it every day. I think we're the best in the world at it. I still think there's a lot of room for improvement. It's just a very, very hard... Because if you think about it, there's two very different mindsets. A lab person gets, if they're lucky, ballpark, one experiment run a day. They'll say, hey, I I tested these compounds. At the end of the day, it worked or it didn't. A computational person is compiling their code or, or running their code dozens of times an hour. So they're getting data points all the time. Oh, this is the bugs. And the cost of executing one versus the other, the amount of thought process that was required between designing a great lab experiment and designing a quick computational experiment, it's just a very different set of thought processes. So how do you merge those two worldviews is something we work on every day. I think we're great. I think there's still more to do. And I guess one of the next questions is how do we do that? I mentioned hiring. I didn't mention this, but we are a partially distributed company where the lab is all in one place. It's very hard to virtualize a mass spec. It turns out, you know, compute can be done anywhere. And we bring everybody into the office twice a year to have focused discussions. And we'll say, all right, we're going to have a set of conversations, which are group discussions. That's usually in the afternoon. And the morning is more freeform where people can get demonstrations in the lab. People kind of interface more ad hoc. So we design these team on sites to create more of that cohesion. And we require any remote person to be in the lab one week per quarter. That actually induces somewhat of a cost on us as an organization. It is increased burn in some ways, but you'd be surprised. It's not that much. And in the end, the benefit is that you can hire the best talent anywhere. You're not really restricted in where and how you hire talent. So that we found to be a pretty significant advantage at a number of positions. So bringing everybody together, hiring for the right people, having clear communications day to day, those are the ways we solve the problem. Remind me, you guys found seemingly the Goldilocks near Boston, but cost-effective and scalable. Is it Waltham? So we were in Woburn, which was very cost-effective. We recently moved to Lexington, which is somewhat more expensive, but still pretty inexpensive relative to downtown Boston. And finds a nice Goldilocks because we have now access to public transit in a way that we didn't in Woburn. 
So that's been a boost for us, yeah. Can you take us through the transition from early stage discovery, approaching clinic, what's changing internally about the company culture as you do that, and maybe give us a sense of what we should be looking forward to as you guys move into the clinic? The biggest hire we've made recently was our CSO, Ryan Kruger, who's a pretty experienced drug hunter, was formerly VP of biology at Foghorn Therapeutics. And what's changing since we brought him on is raising the level of understanding and rigor around the drug discovery process. What are the experiments you need to run to turn a promising compound that may have some flaws to it into a honest-to-God drug that could go into a person. And well, frankly, you're hiring a lot of people. So we're hiring different people on assays. We're hiring different people on medicinal chemistry. Those are the two places where you have to invest a lot of resources. And eventually, we're going to have to build out or hire a head of DMPK. So that's another person that's going to come in probably in the next year or two. You start focusing more on what it takes to polish the molecules, and that just requires just building more compounds, testing more compounds. We are amazing at finding early hit matter, converting those hits into early leads. That's where the machine learning and our parallel approach really shines right now. Over time, as the models get better, we'll be able to push where they contribute further and further down the drug discovery process later into lead optimization. But the truth of the matter is that at some point, you need a med chemist to build compounds that are a little bit more bespoke, that are maybe not quite as off the shelf as you would like, or the building blocks aren't available, or we're going to have to do this sophisticated reaction. I do not see a place where that's going to be replaced. So you need to eventually hire a bunch of med chemists. And the goal for us isn't so much to say we're going to eliminate the medicinal chemist. I think that's a red herring that gets hung around machine learning for drug discovery a little bit, unfairly, I think. But to be fair, a lot of hype has made that claim. I think the reality is what machine learning for drug discovery will do is it's going to empower that med chemist to do more things, to test more ideas, and to be smarter about the experiments they run and be more effective. The analogy I would use is, today we see the impacts of ChatGPT and other large language models, and we're starting to see those impacts, especially in places like programming, where software developers find themselves much more efficient. Yes, they have to do a lot of code themselves still, but some of the boilerplate, some of the easier stuff, some of these quick ideas can be offloaded a little bit to ChatGPT. And then all you're doing is you're doing a bit of an editing job of saying, okay, so there's bugs in this code, or I'd redo it this way but you're much more efficient because you have that machine learning tool next to you. I think that's the future of machine learning and drug discovery. And so our goal really when we do our machine learning is how do we develop something that will enable that for the medicinal chemist? We're still going to have to hire a bunch of them. We're still going to have to be able to test those compounds. That's not going to change, but hopefully we'll be able to get two or three programs, maybe 10 programs out of the same effort as it would take to usually do one. On that topic, let's zoom out five, 10 years. What do you think the impact of a lot of these Yourself and the whole field of machine learning computational approaches for drug discovery will have had. And what does the field look like once these things are kind of fully baked and operationalized? I think everyone will do it in some ways the way we do. There's going to be other things that will get bolted on, but the broad flow of can we generate a large scale, if a little noisy, data set up front, train a model and get to really a much better search space very fast. I think that will be as a matter of course throughout drug discovery, I think. What will then be happening something like five, 10 years from now is we're going to evolve a little bit into, okay, we've solved early hit to lead. Where do we go from here with machine learning? Because now you're inevitably in much smaller data set land. 
And those iterations necessarily are smaller because a human has to make them. So how do you blend those two data sets? How do you bring in a lot more information around admin talks, admin PK, which are the things that can become very challenging to optimize? That's where the field is going to be five years from now. Ten years from now, every med chemist will have a supercharged set of machine learning tools around them that will be predicting, here's a compound that I think worked well in the last assay, and they'll have windows next to them that will say, here's a hundred different ideas, maybe even a thousand different ideas of what to make next, a user interface to make it so that they can filter those out and visualize that very quickly. Another window that helps them say, okay, here's the best way to synthesize it. So I think all of that will be super integrated into a set of easily usable tools for the med chemist. Underappreciated in all of this, and I'll admit we haven't done a ton of work here ourselves yet. I talked a little bit about the culture problem of mixing compute and lab. That also materializes at the how does the med chemist use your machine learning? So there's a user interface question, and how do you get buy-in from the med chemist? There's some aligning of these sorts of characters in the computational world of, oh, you know, the crusty med chemist, they don't want to do new things. They don't want to try new tools. They get very stuck in their old ways. And I think the better way of thinking about that is people who have been building drugs have been doing this often for 20, 30 years. And in that 20 or 30 years, they've seen mostly failure, right? Even if they had nothing to do with computation or whatever, most projects in drug discovery fail particularly if you're going after novel compounds, novel targets. So that means that they're right. When they say this will never work, they're probably right. Most of the time, they're going to be correct. And so you have to find a way to say, okay, I know you're going to be right a lot, but it's still worth trying because I'm going to help you be better and we're going to have more chances of success. So I don't think it's productive to go into these kinds of conversations of saying, hey, we're going to be so much better than this. These people are a little bit old school, et cetera. I think we have to, as an industry and as these interlopers, if you will, find a way to communicate and say, hey, we're going to be your partner. We're going to bring you along and we're going to make it easy for you to use our tools and easy for you to understand how they help you. I think that's a cultural gap that we also need to bridge out. Maybe as as a last question, as the two of us are meeting a lot of people coming from tech trying to get into this landscape. What advice do you have for them on better understanding everything, getting involved, and also not contributing to the divide between lab and the technologists? I find myself occasionally suffering from this, even though having had experience at both the bench and the keyboard. I think the people who come from compute are used to data having a particular shape and a particular reliability. And let's take a little bit of a stereotype. You come out of Facebook, you want to change some aspect of the UI. You're going to have a huge amount of infrastructure behind you that allows you to spin up an A-B test, maybe even several A-B tests. You can spin up all that tooling and infrastructure in like a week. And then you're going to have your information back with quite literally hundreds of thousands of data points, beautiful plots everywhere in the next two weeks. So in in a month, you get this massive data set that's beautifully explained and that is actually fairly internally reliable, right? The benefit for you there that's underlying that is you have a very high degree of control over every aspect of your experiment. If you show a thing on a screen, the JavaScript displays exactly that button the way you thought it would. The person will click or not. It's a binary variable, yes, no, right? So there's a lot of things that are very clear. Almost nothing in biology has anywhere near that kind of control. 
And so even the simplest assets, like, oh, well, there's 10 different elements to your buffer. Maybe this one has a little too much salt, and now your enzyme's not working the way it should. Or maybe you need to control this other variable, and it's like, okay, well, the concentration of the enzyme is a little off, or the tubes are a little sticky. And so you thought you were adding this much enzyme, but in reality, you were adding a tenth that much enzyme. There's a thousand different ways in which experiments go wrong that are not obvious at the protocol level. In tech, you describe your experimental protocol, it will be executed exactly that way. You have high confidence it happened. In biotech, basically no. So understanding how noisy biological data is, how unreliable it is, that's the biggest thing I think tech people need to understand and why this whole machine learning thing is so much more challenging in that context. You need to really think about noise in a different way than I think anybody in coming from tech is used to. The second part is, and I struggled because I don't have a solution for this just yet. The intuition for what a biological system actually is, so thinking about, I've got a bunch of different proteins, and I think about this as a biochemist, right? So I've got a bunch of proteins in the cell, they're interacting with one another, they're sticking with one another or not, right? They're all a little bit loosey-goosey, they're very flexible. So these kinds of mixtures and an intuition for saying, what's an equilibrium? What's a chemical structure in real life? Chemical structure is not just an image on a screen of all these things connected, it's electrons that are flowing around. Some of them are in different positions, right? It's getting that intuition for what the entities in your machine learning problem are is very challenging. And I wish there was a good way of teaching it, sort of a biochem, molecular biology 101 course for people coming in from tech would be kind of interesting to me, I think. I would pay for it if you wanted to make one. I would be for number one. (laughs) So that's something which I think the community needs to work on. I I actually would be interested in participating, trying to think about how to do that. This is a bit much to ask for somebody to read straight out, right? But probably the best single textbook I've seen that covers everything is a textbook called Molecular Biology of the Cell. It's like this giant tome. If you get through... The famous red book, no? I have a gray version and there was a blue version. I don't know which edition they're on now. It's kind of the Bible of cell biology. Bruce Alberts is the head author. And that goes through enough cell biology and biochemistry, I think, for most people to get a sense. It's just a lot of material. So how do you condense that into maybe a couple hundred pages or a more simple to understand? Well, with that, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Simon. You have a good rest of your day. Hope that was helpful. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google. 